Good morning. How are we doing today? It's good to hear you. Um, I can't hardly see you. The lights are bright. But real quick, it is Memorial Day weekend. I know we've already acknowledged that. But um, first of all, do you got your meat ready to go? It's a good grilling weekend, right? I'm doing it today and tomorrow. That's that's a good day. But more than that, it is a day to remember that that I I love the fact that I can stand up here and I'm not worried about um, my religious or freedom of speech as I preach the word to you. And, and we know we have those freedoms because of the sovereign good grace of God, but also because of the lives laid down by men and women who served our country. And so uh, I just want to thank and honor those. Um, if you're here this morning and you have served, we're, we're grateful for you. And uh, if you have lost a loved one over the years and your, or your family lost somebody that was dear to you serving, we know that that loss was significant. And we, this is a weekend to be thankful for that, right? So... Um, yeah. We're, next thing, we're coming to the end of a series that I've really enjoyed preaching and going through uh, called Jesus Is. We've been talking about Christology, what, what it means, like the doctrines, the core truths Christians believe about Jesus. We're going to end that series next week, but we're also starting a new series next week. Uh, it's kind of weird. I've never done this before where I ended one series and start a new series on the same Sunday, but we're doing that next week. And here's why. Uh, I am really excited about what we're doing this summer. We're going to preach a series of sermons from the scriptures. We're not preaching a book, but it's based on a book of, of a person who right now is maybe my favorite contemporary author. Her name is Rebecca McLaughlin. She has written multiple books. She's got a, like her book on Jesus right now that's fairly new called Confronting Jesus. I've been reading that as part of our, my prep and just spiritual journey during this series. It is fabulous. She has another amazing book that's fairly new called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, Ladies and Dudes. I'll be honest, it's, it's been a really helpful book for me. Uh, she focuses in on the witness of Christ from women in the New Testament. It's, it's beautiful uh, what she points out. But her first book that kind of hit the market was called Confronting Christianity. It is a book about the questions that our skeptical friends are asking about our faith, okay? We know we're in a world where, where there's a lot of questions and a lot of disagreement and even some people who look at you because you're showing up here on Sunday morning who are raising their eyebrows going, all right, if you believe that, I'm not so, so sure that's okay. And she's written a, a, a beautiful book that engages with 12 different questions that, that are asked in our culture, the most common and, and, and strongest cultures coming at us. Uh, and so she gives apologetic answers. Apologetic doesn't mean she's apologizing. Apologetics literally just means a defense of the faith. And so we're going to do a summer of apologetics, of, of defending the truths of the Christian faith from the book. And so uh, there's, there's a, a, a slide up here with a QR code. Here's the deal right now. Um, that QR code is just going to take you right to the Amazon page for the book. Buy the book. Get the audiobook. Get a Kindle version. Get a hard copy. Whatever it is that you want to read, buy the book and follow along with us as we are doing this series. We are not going to do it in straight successive order. So later this week, I will put out a post on Koinonia and through our blog. Koinonia is like our online community uh, or through the genesisrika.com blog. Uh, I'll write a post that gives the order of the sermons because they're not, we're not going straight through an order. But we're going to cover all 12 questions this summer. And the first one, uh, the last sermon is Jesus is exclusive. And the, one of the questions in the book is, how can you say there's only one true religion? Those go together. It's a perfect kind of merging of one series, closing out one and, and opening the next. And that's where we'll be going. But take your phone right now. Grab it. Let me see them up. 
Scan the code. Come on, get it. That's why we're putting it up there. Uh, and, and get on the Amazon site now and go ahead and order that book. It'll be here by tomorrow. Or if you're doing the audio or the Kindle, it'll be here now. Right? And get that book. Um, I'm telling you, it will be phenomenal. Now, if your phone's like, it's not working, if you scan the QR code in your bulletin as well, we do that, and your bulletin is QR code, there is a link to the same thing in there. Where you click, once you scan the QR code, you open that website. Uh, we have a link to the Amazon site through that as well. So get the book, read along with us. The other thing I'll, I'll kind of double dog dare you, and then I got to get rolling, is uh, don't just come and listen to the series. Use the questions as opportunities for conversations. Gather some friends, coworkers, neighbors, people that you can have conversations with who are raising these questions and, and tell them, hey, we're, we're doing this series, and I know you have this question about the, the Christianity and the LGBTQ plus movement, Christianity and racism, Christianity and, ex, and the exclusivity of Christ, Christianity and, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't the Bible condone slavery, these sort of things. And I'm going to read the book and, and go to the sermon. I'd love to have you with me, so invite people. But then if, even if they won't come, say, can we have a cup of coffee and talk about this question and interact with that? Read the book with somebody. Find somebody else who may, may be a skeptic, who has questions, and say, I'm going to read this book this summer. Would you read it with me? Use this as a chance. We're not just wanting to stand up here and give you a whole bunch of information so you can feel better about your own faith. We want, we're hoping that this will turn into a bridge between you and people you know to open conversations and that we will equip you for those conversations, all right? So don't just come be a sponge. Be a conduit, let the Spirit flow through you to the people you know as we interact with these hard questions. I'm super excited about that, so here we go. Uh, we're, we're doing this Jesus uh, is, is series, and our, our sermon this morning is Jesus is Coming. Uh, I don't know your background and story, but if, you're like, if, if you grew up like me uh, in 1970s, 80s evangelicalism, which I just got rid of about like two-thirds of our congregation— you grew up in a culture where uh, this was this major hot topic, right? It was a big deal. We talked about it all the time. And there was this one kind of flavor of looking at the end times that, that we kind of jumped into. And it was just all over the place. Um, and so I grew up in a culture where um, the pastor preached on this all the time. We were always hearing these stories about this event called the rapture, which was in, in the scriptures, this idea that there's this moment where I'm here and then I'm not. Okay, uh, and for some, that, like that event is like seven years before some other events and all this sort of stuff. I'm not getting into that this morning, uh, but that's kind of how I grew up is that, you know, people would be walking around and, and like two people would be hanging out and there'd be a Christian here and a non-Christian here. And all of a sudden the, the Christian was gone, right? And the non-Christian's like, where'd he go? That's pretty cool. And, and, and this whole thing, uh, but, but it turned into this whole like industry stuff that went on. We had like the, the, the best way to get a ton of evangelicals at that era to a church was to hold a prophecy conference. You end up with these charts, these graphs, these pictures of dragons, and you know, we'll, come, we'll, we'll help you know when and how and what it's going to look like when this, these events take place. Uh, there were books that were written, some of them trying to predict certain things, uh, others just trying to scare. And I, like, I'm, I'm 8, 9, 10 years old, and my church kept showing this movie um, that the opening scene of the movie, this guy wakes up and his wife is gone and she was a believer and he wasn't. And now he's living in this post-rapture world where the events are unfolding and he's alone and he's freaking out and it scared the fire out of me. And, you know, that was one version. And I, I spent like the rest of my li young life going, I just don't want to get left behind. 
which then turned into the name of the next series of books and movies, right? We have Kirk Cameron showing up and eventually Nick Cage remaking that movie and nobody went and saw it because it was not good. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> but this whole era, we sang songs, you know, we were all singing, I'll fly away, oh glory. And I was like, fly away, that's really weird. I don't know what to do with that. Even as a kid, I wasn't sure how to manage that, but it was, it was kind of constant and it was kind of a big deal all the time. And I don't know if that's your background and story, if you remember these sort of things, or if you read all the left-behind books and all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with any of that. But there was this kind of overbaked emphasis, this, this it's going to happen in the next, like, several months. And, and what's happened in the last 15 or 20 years is that got so deeply in the water of, of this kind of slice of Christianity that we've kind of puked it out. <laughs> and nobody's talking about the second coming of Jesus anymore. And so, as we study the, the beautiful story of Jesus in the scriptures, one of the things we have to understand is that a core doctrine that Christians have always believed is the beautiful truth that Jesus is coming back one day, visibly returning, that history will come to a close, and that Jesus will come again. Now, that's tied to the larger story. So, for those of you who've been here a couple times or are visiting this morning, let me explain to you real quick where we've been, okay? Uh, oh, I, I forgot something in this. Uh, there, I, I'm backtracking, but I can't miss this because it's good. It, it, even with that, Christians had bumper stickers. You ever see one of these? My dad put this on the back of our 1970-something Ford LTD. That bumper sticker was on my car. Every time I read it, I was like, Oh, snap, I hope I don't miss it, you know? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I can see people driving, reading it, going, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I, boom, gone, car wrecks everywhere, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, and so, so there's this kind of feel to this. Well, in the midst of that, uh, it, it, what happens a lot of times is it got disconnected to the larger story. So, so let's just real quick recap where we've been. We've had uh, several sermons uh, where we've been looking at the core beliefs that Christians throughout time and ages have believed about Jesus Christ. We get these, these beliefs from the stories of Jesus in the gospel that are rich and beautiful, that, that show us the person and work of Jesus and his interaction, his love and his compassion and his care for people. And then those stories are interpreted in the rest of Scripture to help us understand what, what they're trying to tell us about Jesus. And what we found so far is that Jesus is fully God. He is God. He is the one true and living God, that he was fully human, that he became one of us, that, that, that there is a sense in which the story says there was this, this, this veil between the, the heavenly realm, which is not out there. It's an unseen realm. Jesus is not like somewhere way off in the distance and is going to jump on, an, on, on like some kind of spaceship and come back. There's a, like, there's a realm we can't see, but it's, it's close and it rules the realm we can and, and there's a point in history where that, that, that veil between those was opened up in a, a human being where heaven and earth combined in one person. And he became one of us. Lived the perfect life I should have lived and then he is our sacrifice. He died on the cross for my sins in my place. We found out that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that this story we read in the Gospels didn't just start in the Gospels, that the whole Old Testament uh, for 2,000 years was an arrow pointing forward to the coming of one person in history. And Jesus shows up and every gospel writer is going, there he is. That Jesus fulfilled these beautiful roles in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. 
that, that he is our representative, he is our go-between, he is our, our ruler. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about the righteousness of Christ, that Jesus is perfect. He did not sin where we sin all the time, and his righteousness is now applied to the people who believe. And then Jesus is alive. Eric so beautifully preached last week the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that physically, bodily, Jesus came out of the grave. He's not some mere apparition. It wasn't that he rose in my heart. This is not, you know, when you go to a funeral and somebody says, I just, I feel grandma's still alive. I can feel her presence. That's a beautiful sentiment. That is not what's happening in the Bible. Jesus was not alive in our hearts. He was alive in the living room eating fish with them after they, he'd been killed on, on Friday. And, and so Jesus is alive. And, and, and so those things matter for us to say Jesus is coming because we've got to understand that there's a connection to the story. And that connection is, is important. But we need to understand that this is a big deal in the New Testament in the Bible. This is not a minor side doctrine. In fact, the... the, the Second coming of Jesus and the implications of that are mentioned over three, at least 318 times in the New Testament. One out of about every 13 verses either allude or speak directly to this idea. Uh, we've talked about how all the prophecies in the Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. But believe it or not, for every one prophecy in the Old Testament that was pointing to his first coming, there are approximately eight prophecies that are pointing to the final coming, the day of the Lord where he will return again. This is not a minor thing. And it is the place where Christians throughout history have placed their hope. It is the reason we endure. It is the reason people in persecution who are dying for their faith will look at their persecutor and say, take my life. I'm not denying Christ because I know how the story ends. Now, what happens is sometimes in our culture, we end up sounding like kooks. And it's hard, like, we're, we're, how do we articulate this? But we can't walk away from this. It is the hope of ultimate salvation, but it is tied to the larger story. And very specifically, in the, the Bible is tied to the story of the kingdom. There's this giant arc over all of Scripture. It is about God as king, his kingdom. His kingdom shows up in Israel in the Old Testament. But then they fail, and the kingdom seems like it's it's ruined and broken and, and, and not capable of doing what happened. And then Jesus shows up in the world as the true and living king who ushers in the rule and reign of God. Everything about his ministry is going, this is what it looks like when God rules. And sickness is pushed back. Waves, storms stop. Masses of people are fed. Justice is done. And, and the, the story of the, the, the kingdom of God coming in the, the first coming of Jesus culminates in Jesus' death on the cross, which the New Testament writers, the gospel writers, want us to see the seat on the cross as a throne where God is ruling the world from a Roman cross and defeating every enemy at that moment. Right? And so when Jesus starts teaching, the most common thing out of his mouth, like you, you start reading the teaching of Jesus, he just keeps going, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom. It's over and over. He just sees, says, this is what it looks like. And what he's saying, every time you see this phrase on Jesus' lips, he's saying, this is what it looks like in the world when God reigns through the true king, Jesus. So when we see that phrase, when we're reading the Bible, we ought to go, okay, Jesus is teaching me something about what it looks like when God rules in the person of Christ, in me and in the world around me. But there's always this tension in this teaching between what is called the now and the not yet. On one level, 
Christ came. He defeated the enemies. He rules and reigns. Yet I wake up in the morning and I read the newspaper and I I hear stories and I'm like, "Mm, there are all kinds of places where it doesn't feel like he is reigning the way I think it's going to reign. And what, what we find as we understand the story of the Bible is that God's purposes will not be thwarted, but his rule and reign right now is primarily happening through his people. He is saving. Like, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, this is what happened to you. And if this is not what happened, you may want to rethink what it meant for you to be a Christian. There was a point where you looked at Christ and said, I trust you. I'm not trusting me anymore. I'm placing my faith in Jesus as my Messiah, as my Savior. Therefore, my sins are going to be forgiven because of the cross, but I'm also bowing my knee to you as king. I give the reign and rule of my life over to you. I don't run me anymore. I have a new king. And we become people who live under the mandates of a different kingdom with a different king who has different values in the world. And our lives are transformed. And now we want everybody to know our king. He is a good king. He's a benevolent king. He's a savior king. He has done everything necessary. He loves the world. He wants the world to know him. And so the, 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 the purpose of the kingdom is happening through the changed lives of people who trust Jesus and the, the, the pronouncement and the spread of the gospel all over the world. The good news of the kingdom is preached and it is promised that that good news of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations before Christ returns because the end of the story when Christ does return there will be a, a, a rejoicing in the eternal kingdom the not yet of people from every tribe and people and nation and color and language and culture will be gathered together with, with one king and transform lives The kingdom is happening. You're proof of the unstoppable nature of the kingdom of God. Do you get that? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are proof that the kingdom is now. But Thank you. Yes. But there is also a not yet. First time Jesus came was a humble Galilean peasant, born in simple circumstances, grew up largely unknown until his ministry began, gathered massive crowds, but his ministry looked like it got shipwrecked as he ends up on a cross. Yet from there, Christ destroyed and defeated every enemy. And he ascended. The ascension of Jesus is this beautiful moment where he takes his throne. But he, all through, there's this promise that one day he's coming back. And his return is going to be significant. And that's what we're trying to hit this morning. We're trying to tell you that the beauty of, of the second coming of Christ is tied to this big story and that we as Christians, we hold to this and believe to this firmly and it is the, the locus, it is the object of our hope today, right? And so I, I just want to delve into this and wrestle with what it says. In a minute, we're going to talk about two big passages of Scripture. And, and I'm giving you the overview. We're not going to get into the weeds of everything that's said in the text. But there's this big idea in two passages um, that are two of the biggest of this hundreds of passages in the Bible that look at this. But, but before we get there, I, I do want to tell you a few things about the promise of the second coming, no matter where you read it. The promise of the second coming, no matter where you read it, is clear about something gives hints at something, and then actually won't say something about something and warns us to be careful. All right, are you ready? It, it, the promise of the second coming is very clear about the who. Very clear. That it is the, the same Jesus who came 
in the first century will come again, that 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 veil will be pulled apart again, and the heaven will intersect with earth, and where heaven intersects with earth is in the person of Jesus, and he will appear visibly, that every eye will see him, and he will appear in such a way. Now, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are standing after Jesus ascended, and they're looking up into heaven, and, and here comes the angel, and the angel says, boys, it's time to get to work. Now, I'm paraphrasing. This is not the Literal Greek. But boys, it's time to get to work. This Jesus who just left you, this Jesus will come back in the same way he left. But until he comes again, now not yet, you got a job to do. Go preach Christ. That's the story. It is Jesus who's coming back. Our hope is in Jesus. Our, our trust is in Jesus. We are Jesus-centered people. We are not here to offer you a religion. We are not here to offer you a way to live. We are here to offer you the true and living God in the person of Jesus as the only hope of the world. And it's all about Jesus, but he is coming back. The who is unbelievably clear. Every prophecy is like pointing us, there he is. It's him. Now, every prophecy gives us hints about the how. Hints about the how. This is why when you get into the weeds of this discussion, there are so many different theories about how this is all going to work out in the end. And that doesn't mean we should run from it, but when we get to the how, this was the problem of my childhood, is that they read the Bible, and, and my, my heritage, the people who were influencing my heritage, chose a lane of the how and ignored 2,000 years of Christian history that said, mm, there's other opinions. And then they started conferences just ignoring everything that was said by other voices, looking at some of the hints and the clues and the ideas that are all through Scripture. And, and there's some things that are clear about how Jesus will return. There are some things that are less clear. And every generation is interpreted to say, we think it's going to happen in our lifetime, which I think Jesus intended. It's not that they were wrong. They were looking to a hope that they were supposed to be ready for. But when you get too narrow in this, you might run into some ditches. And that's what happened in my, my growing up. I actually don't hold the view anymore that was the, the majority dominant view of my heritage about these things. But I will tell you, I hold my view with really loose fingers. I hold my view of the who close handed and sure. The how, hmm, there's hints. We can have good discussions. We should be looking for certain things, but at the end of the day, Christ will work it out and God will, will accomplish his purpose. And when it happens, we'll know. We'll know. But the Bible actually is unbelievably clear about not saying about the when. About saying, listen, we're not going to tell you when it's going to happen. We're not even going to try to hint. And, and so what happens is that the Bible's always saying, could come any day, could not, be ready. But, but nothing about the when. And this is what happened even during those ages. You had all these books. Like There was a book that came out when I was in college. The title of the book was 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Anybody remember that? Those of you who are older like me, remember that book? And, and, and he literally, the guy who wrote it, literally narrowed it down to a three-day three window because he read the Bible and says that, that, that nobody knows the day, but we can know the three-day window. It's what we believe, right? During Rosh Hashanah of 1988 in September, the Jewish holiday of the Jewish New Year is when it's going to happen. And, and then sold books like crazy had charts and graphs and pictures of dragons and prophecy conferences and packed rooms and sold 
thousands of books. And then guess what? And here's what I will tell you lovingly. We're going to read our passage, and Jesus himself is going to say, in his humanity, I don't know when. So if you have this guy over here going, but I do, somebody standing up going, I know more than Jesus about the way this thing's going to work out, you, you might want to run. You, you might not want to buy that book except for maybe to read it and go, eh, he, he's going to be wrong. And, and those happen a lot. Like, there's, you know, all these things were pointing to all these prophecies and telling you, well, he has to come back by here. He has to heard it over and over again in my childhood. And then, of course, there's planes in the movies where guys fly in the plane and he's raptured and the plane goes down and all the unbelievers on the plane all die because, you know, nobody can fly the plane. And, you know, the, the when we don't know. And the, the scriptures are very clear. And so what we need to do is we need to wrestle with the beauty of this, this truth without getting too firm. And the outcome ought to be this, that we live today as if he could return today and we're ready and we prepare to reach the nations and give our lives and, and plan on being here for the next hundred years. All right? That, that's how we live this out. So Matthew chapter 24, if you have a Bible, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew 24. I'm going to give you a little context and just read kind of through the story. And then we're going to flip over to Revelation chapter 19 after that and read a different perspective on the same event. These are both passages that are looking from a little bit different perspectives at this event called the Second Coming. The first one is Jesus himself speaking to his apostles, his disciples. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 24. We'll start in verse 29, page 920. If you don't have Bibles at the, uh, in some of the rows, at the end of some of them, there's baskets with Bibles. We would love for you to have that. And that is our gift to you today if you don't have one that is your own. Matthew chapter 24. And let's, uh, I'm going to begin with verse 29. It says, immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I, I didn't give you the context, so I've got to set this up for you. All right, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's hanging out with his 12, 12 dudes, 12 apostles. They just left Jerusalem, and they just left the temple. And as they're leaving, the apostles, the disciples are going, man, that place is there's so much gold. It's just a beautiful, awesome place. I'm so glad Israel has this great place. And Jesus looks at him and goes, not going to be too long where that mountain, that building, that whole place is going to be destroyed. And they're like, wait, what? Dude, I, do not make this part of your kingdom campaign, man. Not going to work in Israel. My goal is to get rid of the temple. Like, like that, that's just not a good political posture. And they're kind of weirded out by it. Like, how do I make sense of this? And he says, he, he starts giving a, a pr prediction of not only the, the, the destruction of the temple, but a day where the Roman armies are going to march into Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem. It's an event where Jesus prophetically says it here. It happened in 70 AD. Jesus is about th somewhere between 35, 37 years out and clearly prophetically predicts events that come to pass. But then they, they follow up and they ask Jesus two questions. When is that going to happen? And what are the signs of the, the time of your coming and the end of the age? They ask two questions. And Matthew 24 weaves together two events that are part of the story, weaves together these two things in one prophetic discourse from the lips of Jesus 
about those two events, which we now know are separated by about 2,000 years at least. But this is very similar to a ton of the prophecies of the Old Testament. A ton of times where the, the Old Testament prophets are speaking, they use language like, thus saith the Lord, and they speak of the day of the Lord, where they will speak of near events and weave them in very closely with far events. And the near event is just a small picture of what will happen in the final event. And, and so he's been saying this in verse 29. He says, after this tribulation, it's referencing the events in Jerusalem and the time between that time and this afternoon, okay? When that period of tribulation, and that word is interpreted by different groups, different ways, but I'm not getting into that. After this tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as... The days of Noah's soul will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then they were, uh, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what the day your Lord is coming." But know this, that the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming. He would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus in this section, almost all the scholars who read this understand that while there's an interweaving, this last section I just read is actually a reference to the coming of Christ at the end of the age, the second coming. Where every eye will see him, where he will, they will see him coming on the clouds. And so we have this beautiful picture here. Now, what happens then is in the New Testament, there's this guy named John, who's one of the 12 men who are sitting at this moment. One of the 12 men who were talking to Jesus at this moment. And he is now probably around 40 years later. And John's an older man. He's loved Christ for his whole life. And he is writing some books. And one of those books is this crazy book called Revelation, which is like... It's got all this imagery of these events. But it's where a lot of the discussion and, and interesting conversations about these events show up because it's a hard book to interpret. But in, it, at the end, near the end of this, in Revelation chapter 19, we see this, this picture. And chapter 19 starts with rejoicing in heaven because this moment has come. But then John puts us back on earth and sees the, the, like in this poetic, vision-driven image, shows us the event that is this second coming of Jesus. So in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. 
Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His, his clothes, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, verse 11 through 13 is telling us again the who. Every phrase in there is showing us the lamb who was slain, who was now the king who was coming. His clothes were dipped in blood, but he is riding a white horse. That's the way emperors would enter their kingdom, announcing their rule. He is riding on a white horse. He comes with the names faithful and true, righteous. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is, these are all allusions to all kinds of biblical pictures of Christ, who is our king and Messiah. And so, Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and his thigh have a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing on the sun. Uh, standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he, he called to all the birds that had fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the king of the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet and who, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. There were thrown, uh, the, these two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, that is not a fun text. It is enveloped in texts on either side, that show us what one phrase said in the, in the Matthew 24 text about the gathering of the elect, the Christ redeeming and rescuing his own people. But this is Christ coming as the judge who is also the king who makes war against his enemies. And it's hard. He, he comes both to rescue and to judge and, and the events here, like, again, every eye sees him. And people with hardened hearts will turn on him and think they're going to fight a war against him. There are these two cryptic figures called the false prophet and the beast, which are pictures of, of these horrible figures in, in, in the book of Revelation. But very specifically, we have Satan and, and these two human representatives that kind of come at the church and, and fight against Christianity all through the story. And Christ comes with his followers and makes war, but it's not much of a war. He speaks a word, the war is over. And he rules. His, what is broken and ruined is rescued and redeemed. And so what we have here is these two of, the great, two, two of these great passages out of a, a bunch that point us to this beautiful truth that Christ is coming again. Now what I want to do real quick is I, I want to take these two texts and just 
gives some, some pictures and ideas, some clarity on what we, what we should believe and how it should shape us. So this is going to happen real fast. I'm going to hit these really quickly, but I want to share four, four truths about the second coming. I want to tell you one central application about the second coming, and then I'm going to point us to uh, three um, outcomes for those who believe in Jesus. Four, four central truths that are clear in every passage and clear in these passages about the second coming first. And the first one is that Jesus will appear decisively. He will appear decisively. In, in other words, what, what everyone these texts tell us is that when Christ does appear, history as we know it is over and there is a new age. But that new age is the age of the kingdom. That the brokenness and the mess and the, and the evil and the enemies of the cross and all these sort of things in this world, it will be over and there will be a new era coming. That when Christ returns... His kingdom will, will cover everything. We see this in, in the Matthew text, verse 29, where it talks about the, the sun darkened, the moon turned to blood, all these sort of things. These are prophetic images of cataclysmic events in history that signify God's justice and judgment and his, his ushering in of something beautiful and new in that moment. And, and, and this is what it's saying, is that all these texts are pointing to a day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, where, where everything that we've held on to, especially those who are living in places where they're persecuted and suffering and dying for their faith, will be vindicated and Christ the King will come and establish his kingdom, period. That there is a day coming where that's happening. Now, how do we know for sure that that day's coming? Because he got up on Easter Sunday morning. This is not speculation and some mystical hope and something. Christ is risen. We know that happened. He said he's coming again. It's going to happen. I don't know when. I don't know how. I do know who. And he's going to come again. The second thing we see very clearly is that he will vi appear visibly. That the return of Jesus is a visible moment. If you're ever having a conversation and somebody says this to you, I wonder if Jesus already returned. If you have to ask the question, the answer is no. Because when this event happens, nobody will wonder. Those of us who are looking forward to it are going to go, Woo! Yes! The day I've been waiting for! And those who aren't are going to first, in terror, shrink back and then galvanize to try to stop it. And it can't, he can't be stopped. Not everybody loves Jesus. There's a lot of people who don't know about Jesus. We've got to get to them. But there's a ton of people in the world where the idea of Jesus just makes them angry and bitter and, and hardened. And, and even in our own culture, that's becoming more and more real. And, and you know, at the end of the day, every eye will see him. Third thing we, we, we need to know about the second coming of Jesus, he will appear redemptively. He will appear redemptively. In other words, when he comes, those of us who know Christ are going to find beauty. He's going to gather us to himself. He's going to call people. like He's, he's going to bring us 
and, and, and our redemption will be final. And for those of us who are still alive and remain, it means we're going to be caught up together in the air, uh, or caught up and brought to him. For those who are, have died before this event, it's the moment of the resurrection, where whether we're still alive or we've died, we've preceded this event in death, at that moment, we will come up out of the graves, we will have resurrection body, and every taint of sin, every taint of brokenness will be over, and we will live and reign and rule with him forever and ever in a real place where heaven and earth again collide and become one. And, and it will be the final redemption. I am rescued. I'm telling you, I know Jesus. He has changed my life. But I wake up and my body hurts. And I miss my dad. And I can't wait for a new day. And it's going to happen. Our hope is there. And it's not some... Sweet by and by, I hope it will happen. It is a settled conviction because Christ is alive and he is coming back. It is a redemptive return. And last, he is coming as a judge. He will, the Jesus will appear with justice. There's, there's a passage here that I think most people have misinterpreted. Maybe if you grew up like I did, where, where it said, verse 40, 41, it says there's these two people working. One will be taken, one will be left. Two people, two ladies working at a, a, a grinding in a bill. One will be taken, one will be left. And back in the old version, it was like, all right, there's these two people taken, sitting there, and all of a sudden the raptured one is gone and the other person is left behind. That's actually, not, if you read the text honestly, what he's saying is there's two people side by side, and one of them loves Jesus and one of them doesn't. The one who is taken is taken in judgment. And it's a hard thing. We live in this culture where, where people don't want to hear about the judgment of God. But what, what God's judgment, what God's justice is going to do is going to settle everything and make it right. Our world is really broken. There is real thing called evil. It's not just some evolutionary thing that happened and now we're just stuck in this world. Listen, there is something that is tangible and real in the human heart that is wicked beyond compare. And Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And, and, and while that may be hard, we need to hold on to that and know that this is God's way of saying what's wrong in the world will not have the final say. He will come as judge. And, and, and it's a tough doctrine, but it's a doctrine that actually gives great hope. By the way, I will tell you this. It's a doctrine that our Western culture chokes on. But where people are suffering in the world and where evil is right in your face, they, don't, they are longing for the day. You're not going to find people in North Korea who are going, I don't believe in a God who judges. I mean, they're just not going to say that. They're hoping God will show up and do something to the evil regime that is over them. And so, so he will come to bring justice, to make the, the, the balances right, to do what is good, and he will bring judgment here. In Revelation 19 and 20, uh, there are actually this picture. If you read the whole thing, you would see that there are actually two great suppers. It's kind of weird. In chapter 20 and chapter 21, there is this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where he takes those of us who know Christ, and he sits us at a table, and we become part of this eternal banquet in the presence of Christ, and he feeds us the choicest meats. But it's not the only supper in this chapter. chapter. If you notice it, in chapter 19, there's another meal. It's called the Great Supper of God. And if you look at the text, who's God inviting to this supper? Look at it real quick. He's inviting the vultures. He 
This is why we need urgency, folks. The world that doesn't know Jesus and who is rejecting Jesus, this is how it ends. This doctrine really matters for us today because there is a supper where the flesh of horses and people who die at the word of the Lord, and that sounds harsh and awful, but it is the justice that is due all of us. We all deserve this. Only the cross of Christ keeps me out of, gets me out of the first supper and into the second one. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ that keeps me from being part of the first one and, and being part of the second one. You get that, right? But we need to make much of Jesus. So, so four great truths, one, one application. It shows up in Matthew 24, very simply put, where Jesus says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not know. Simple application. Jesus says, here's the only thing, the, the only application for the message of second coming. Are you ready? It's going to happen. Are you ready? That day is going to come. Are you ready? Have you prepared? Have, have, are you thinking about that? Are you living this day for that day? Are you living this day knowing that day is coming? Are you ready? Are you preparing yourself? Are you doing all you can to prepare the people around you? Are you ready for that day? See, what happens in Matthew 24 is the way the Bible does this. It takes this near moment where God is going to come as a judge over this, this nation that is Israel, and these catastrophic events happen. There's actually massive bloodshed. The Roman army is going to be ruthless. Temple's destroyed. And he layers that over this final day of the Lord so that what we see in Scripture is every little day of the Lord is a picture of the final day. Helping us understand that for those who know him, it is a joyous thing, but for those who don't, the justice and judgment, the coming kingdom of God, where he makes, like, all the evil's gone and brokenness is left, and he restores his world, all this sort of beautiful stuff that is promised is, is reversing the effects of the brokenness and the fall, and he is vindicating all that is right. And when, when those events show up, it's not, not going to be a good day. Are you ready? And so what, what, he, what the, the, the authors, of the prophetic authors do is they layer these two things so that when you see one, you're kind of like giving a little taste of what the final one's going to be like for those who are not seeing the beauty of Jesus. See, see the, the prophecy about Israel is simply this. For 2,000 years, the Messiah came, and when he showed up, y'all whacked him. You rejected your Messiah. There's no remedy except judgment. And that is still, for all of us who are trying to find our own goodness, our own path, that is still the promise. Are you ready? Be ready, because the layering helps us see that every small day of the Lord, and here it is for you, you may say, well, how do I believe, listen, that's silly, we're, we're now 2,000 years after the time of Jesus. Well, you may survive until the day of the Lord. You, you, that would be awesome, right? Wouldn't it be cool if just like right here, I get done with my sermon, Eric walks up on stage, and right as he strums the first chord, we hear a trumpet. An angelic trumpet. And we know, that's it, this is it. We're like, woo! Eric, we love you, but we can go worship there, right? Right, right, that would be cool, right? And, and, and so, so there's, there's understanding that it could happen at any minute. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't, 
There is a day of the Lord that is appointed for you. There is a day where you will take your last breath. And it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Are you ready for either the day of the Lord, your day of the Lord? It's coming somehow. Are we prepared for that day? That's Jesus' central message. And he gives these two really cool illustrations. The first one is a fig tree. He's like, you're going out in springtime. You look and you see the trees budding. And what do we know? Summer's near. Now, we have this thing called Google Calendar where we follow the months and the days of the year. Ancient people didn't have all the beautiful things like this. And the issue here is not that we're like, woo, trip to the beach, summer's here, right? Can't wait. Gonna fill up the swimming pool. For them, the budding of the trees meant it's time to get to work and plant our crops. We see the budding, summer's close. If we don't get busy with the call that God has as agricultural people to prepare our field, God loves us, he gives us our food, but the way God loves us and gives us our food is we get our rear ends out there in the fields and we work our tails off so that the harvest will come because we have done our part in the planting, right? You get it? And he's saying, for some, this is what the day of the Lord is going to be like. We're looking at it and we're like, I, I see the bud. I see the green. I got things to do. I'm preparing myself. That's the first illustration. Second illustration he gives is, it's also going to come for others like the day of Noah. Where people are hanging out, they're marrying, they're giving a marriage, they're parting. And here you have this crazy kook who's building an ark. And people are looking at him going, what a religious nut job, man. <laughs> building a giant boat out here in the middle, there's no water. Like, and... and Man, I mean, it'd be cool if you had like a big old F4, F-150 with a giant boat trailer. We're not getting that for you here in ancient times, right? Noah, this is nuts. That, that boat is just a relic of your religious nuttiness. And they went about their business until when? The door of the ark closed and the rain started. And then it was too late. Two illustrations. One's pointing to the right way to look. The other's pointing to the wrong way to be ready. Are you ready? Which leads me to my final thought this morning. And that is a real quick journey through three basic implications for each of us this morning. The first implication is this. That the coming of the second, the second coming of Jesus is the basis of our hope. Like if you're a follower of Jesus and life gets hard and the doctor has bad news. And, and your work is not working out well. And the toil is difficult. This isn't all there is. If you've been mistreated and harmed, if persecution comes our way, if, if people in our congregation begin to lose their lives for the faith, this is not all there is. For, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's the basis of our hope. 
Christ is risen, we will rise again. He will come again. We are hoping and waiting for that day in this day. That's good news. That's right. Second thing is, it is, it is the fuel for our mission. Because if, if the message of the second coming ends up with us in prophecy conferences and does not lift our chin to see our lost neighbors and friends and the unreached people of the world, we're doing it wrong. I'm just telling you that this is the fuel for world evangelization and missions. This is the reason, like even our next series, I'm saying, listen, don't just read the book. Have conversations. Let's reach our neighbors. Let's tell them about Jesus. Uh, let, let, let's reach them with the beauty of the gospel because uh, people need to hear about Christ. Uh, uh, author and, and Pastor J.D. Greer said this, the point of the book of Revelation, therefore the message of the end times, is not to give you details for the idle speculation about the nature of the second coming. The point is to motivate you to give your life to make sure everybody knows about his first coming. In his first coming, he came bringing salvation. The second time he comes, he's bringing judgment. And not everybody knows about his first coming, which means they are not ready for the second coming. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. This ought to light a fire to say, I've got to be part, like I've got to give my life to something bigger than just my nine to five. I am part of something huge. It is the gospel to the nations, the gospel to my neighbors, because how will they know unless they hear? Now, I'm, I'm going to be a part of that. It is the fuel for missions, and finally, it is, it is the soap for holy living. At John in chapter Three of John says, we are awaiting his appearing. When he appears, we will see him as he is. And, and he goes on to say, and this will purify us. It, it, is, it is, the person I'm going to become is working backward and changing me now. And now it is the hope of the second coming becomes this agent that begins to cleanse my life. I'm living this day for that day to please and honor Christ with all that I am. So if you're here today and, and you're a follower of Jesus, Go home and go, woo! He's coming again. Came the first time I met Christ. He's coming again. If you're here today and you're not, get ready. Today's a chance. Are you ready? Jesus said, stop the silliness of trying to figure out when. Just realize I'm coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? And if you're here today and you're like, I don't know, I don't know. Don't leave here without being sure. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing to Jesus, okay? You ready for that? I'm getting off the stage. We're going to sing to this Jesus. He is good. He is our Savior. He is our Rescuer, and he's coming again. We're going to sing to this Jesus. We're going to do it together. We're going to do it like people who believe he's coming again. We're not going to sing like my old Baptist church who had all these prophecy conferences that they'd sing, and you didn't know they, were, like, they weren't ever happy about any of this stuff. We are excited about Jesus who came, who's coming again. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing, and, and, and we're going to celebrate Jesus. But if you're here today and you're like, I don't know. I don't know. The, during the, at the end of service, we'll have people over here by these speakers who are ready to meet with you. I'll be over here. There are people all around you. Grab somebody and go, man, this, this shook me. I'm not sure what to do with this. Let's have a conversation. Let's point you to what it means to trust Christ as your Savior and King today. Let, let's point you to the salvation that is yours, where the second coming can be something where you have great hope in. And let's help you meet Jesus today. Don't leave here today without trusting Christ if you're not sure.
Lord, we come to you today thanking you for the promise you are coming again. There is no doubt about that. It, it may feel unsure at moments. We may feel like we are losing in the world, but at the end of the day, you are going to vindicate your holiness. You are going to return. Every eye is going to see you. We are longing and looking forward to that day, but we're going to live this afternoon preparing for a lifetime of, of, of living with that day in view so that we make a difference in our day. So help us, Lord. And for anybody in here who doesn't have a relationship with you, who doesn't know you, may you use this moment right now to open their hearts to the beauty of the gospel, to bring them to know you, to, to affirm that they are chosen by you and that they will, they will come to faith in you today. We just pray that over this room this morning. Come in your power. In your name I pray, amen.